Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the off the wall and outrageous and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the show on this Monday morning. Uh, and we have a very special guest, Mel Baker, in the studio. He is a centenarian, 100 years old, and he's going to be talking to us a little bit about his life. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do the whole thing because it is very long. Uh, but I have to say I'm amazed uh, to have Mel in the studio. He is uh, a picture of health uh, and has uh, some amazing memories. He's going to be sharing uh, with us. We also have Fred Oppenheimer, who's uh, a friend of his, going to be helping us. Uh, on the show uh, and just uh, working with Mel. As we do the the story, particularly we're going to be uh, listening to some of the uh, some of his war stories, his his time uh, in the army. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mel, maybe a start off. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you grew up uh, and where you're from. I was born in, in uh, Port Elizabeth on the 9th of January 1920. I lived in Irvine Street, Port Elizabeth, which is just around the corner from the, from the school. And I, I had a Jewish friend who was two doors away from me by the name of Joey Le Pen. And, um, we used to go down when there were weddings on at the school. We'd go in and creep in and just to see what's going on. And this became a little bit of a habit of ours. That was my first sort of connection with the Jewish community, per se. My first school life was in Port Elizabeth. Um, and my first school life was up to Standard 7, was in uh, Selborne, East London. transferred back to PE. My last three years at Grey, where I matriculated in 1936. Uh, then, then joined a firm of accountants. And after three years there... Um, Britain declared war on the 3rd of September 1939. South Africa at that stage had no navy, so we, we had the choice at peacetime training. You get called up usually for the army, so I volunteered for the navy to preempt that. And we were the RNVR base when uh, South Africa declared war on the 6th. So that evening, like a lot of idiots, we all joined up. Signed on. But being the rookies, they took in the first people they took in to second to British ships were those who'd had previous training. So finally, I was called up for full-time service on the 1st of March 1940. So so in other words, you actually ended up join, joining the, a naval unit, uh, despite uh, yes. the fact that we didn't have a navy here yes. in South Africa. Most South Africans then were seconded to British warships. So we, after a month in Port Elizabeth, we were transferred to uh, to Simonstown, and when the Gloucester came in about f- just a month after we'd been there, they were short of 32 uh, bodies that they'd required on the ship. So 32 South Africans joined joined the ship in May 1940. Uh, we went straight up to the Mediterranean, and we're based in Alexandria, Egypt, and uh, from there... We were involved with all the Malta convoys and uh, at, at Malta to prevent uh, prevent um, 
the Italians from uh, uh, from from getting their supplies and so on across to uh, across to North Africa. So what was it like uh, to be on the Mediterranean on a ship? Uh, I can imagine it's a lot of hard work. What do you do during the day? Uh, uh, actually, uh, most of the South Africans, we were just, we were just virtual laborers. <laughs> we didn't have proper training. We had no specialist training. So we, um, so, so we were there. My, my action station was in the, in the shell gallery. We had to feed shells up into the, into the six-inch guns up above. And uh, my watch station was a surface lookout. Other than that, you were just a, just a general seaman, because there was no time to train us properly. Did you often come across ships uh, in the Med that were Italians, or was it just more of a, a kind of a patrolling exercise? Yeah. The, early on in the war, the opposition war from the Italians, and uh, the Italian bombers were all high-level bombers in those days. The first naval action, actually, when uh, Italy declared war, was the uh, Liverpool and the Gloucester, two, two six-inch cruisers with a couple of destroyers, went into Tobruk to bombard the harbour and the installations and so on. And uh, we, it, it only lasted, I think, probably about not even 10 minutes because they opened up with great 9.2-inch guns, shore, shore guns, so we got out as fast as we could. <laughs> we went in fast and came out fast, but did quite a lot of damage, sunk one little vessel in the harbour, so that was the first naval action, surface action against the Italians in the war. And you were part of that uh, yeah, process? We were part of that, yes. What is that like? It must be quite a scary thing once the, the ships actually go into action, particularly if you haven't had much training. Yeah. Of, of course, where I was down the shell gallery when this happened, you didn't see what was going on. You were just uh, uh, lifting shells and pumping them in to put them in the hoist as fast as, as, fast as necessary. That's all I actually saw of the of the action itself, and then we were also involved with the the Toronto, do with the uh, with the uh, fleet air arm from the illustrious and the eagle with the two uh, uh, aircraft carriers, and uh, we were we were virtually nursing to the to the eagle, and the illustrious uh, aircraft went front. They all took off at the same time. And we spent, during the night, we were all anxious, wondering how many of those guys were going to get back. And actually, they only lost two planes. Uh, the, uh, the pilot and co-pilot in the one plane were killed, and the other two were taken, the other, from the other plane were taken, uh, were captured and taken prisoner. But the damage that was done was very serious to the Italian Navy. So they moved from Toronto further up the Adriatic coast. And uh, it was a long time before they came out to sea again. So finally, on the 28th of March, 41, the Italian fleet came out, and uh, that was the Battle of Matapan. We were very much involved with that one. Four cruisers with destroyers were separated from the battleships to went in to try and entice the Italian fleet towards our battleships. But in fact, we were approaching them rather than approaching our lot. So the uh, Italian battleship with 15-inch guns fired on us, and we were the last ship in the line. So when they fired on us, we're, we're, you know, the message came full speed ahead. And uh, just before that, the Gloss had been having troubles with uh, one of its screws. And uh, we were running on three screws instead of four. 
and so our speed was down to about 23 knots instead of 32 knots. So they thought they were going to leave us behind. But the, but the engineers had worked on this really hard, and they managed to do a patchwork job, and we managed to get away with it. So we started passing a couple of the other ships, so the next thing, message comes out, get back into line, Gloucester. In other words, you take it while we, while we get out. <laughs> that's, that's what we sort of felt about it, quite frankly. Did you have a lot of friends? Because they actually, oh, they actually straddled us. Yeah. There was, um, a pom-pom deck was very, very high up. There was even a bit of shrapnel from one of these shells came, landed up on that deck. Mm-hmm. So we were involved with, with the major actions in the Mediterranean at that time. And, and then we were based in Malta for a while with uh, uh, Lord Louis Mountbatten's uh, destroyer flotilla. We were going back into harbour, and one of the destroyers, just in front of us, um, w- went over a mine and, and just virtually broke in half. The bow and the stern were sticking out when all the smoke and that cleared from the explosion, and, and that, that was it. Fortunately, this, this, this cut into us because we, we were the next one to virtually go into the harbour. So they, they took it instead of us. So from there we went straight to, to Crete to stop the, invasion, the uh, surface invasion from Greece to Crete. Can and, I just uh, stop you there quickly and just ask, yeah. what, what was it like to be on board a ship? Uh, do you make friends? Is it very cramped? Uh, is it hot? What is it like to live all of your time on a, on a, on a vessel? You spent as much time on deck as you could, when you could, because down below it was always stuffy and hot, because the ship's all closed up. You, you get the, uh, the air blowing through, but you know, it's, it's, it's not air-conditioned air. Down below, you spend as much time as you possibly can up, up on deck. Uh, and what do you eat? Eating on the, on, the, on, the, on the bigger ships was great. We, we had a virtual roast every day of our lives. <laughs> we had our own bakery, own butcher, and a big, big galley, and, uh, and f- the food was good. We ferried um, troops across from uh, Alexandria to Prius in Greece. We made three trips, uh, taking a thousand odd troops each, each trip. And these soldiers came on board, so we, they were fed our food. They said, is this the sort of food you get? <laughs> because they were used to bu- the bully beef story. <laughs> and, and, and we came up, quite frankly, with the, with the, this. I said, well, that's what we eat every day. <laughs> they just couldn't believe it. <laughs> so there's one thing about being on the bigger ships. You, you were fed well. You had nice fresh bread every day, except when there were action stations. Then it was a different story. Everything was shut down. Mm-hmm. Then, then, we, then we go on bully, bully beef ration for a couple of days. And how many people on a the ship? There were over 800. Just crew? When we were sunk, there were 806. Mm-hmm. See, but the, the, the sinking took place off Crete. We ran out of ammunition, anti, anti-aircraft ammunition. We became an absolute sitting duck. We were isolated from the fleet, which was a stupid mistake on the part of an admiral, Admiral King. He, um, as Cunningham reported, said afterwards in his memoirs that he he, he might have been a, uh, a good office waller, but he couldn't think on his feet. <laughs> anyway, he, after that, he was given a sure job, and before the war finished, he was um, retired. Thanks to him, we lost two two of our cruisers that, that day. So how long had you been at sea when, uh, when, you, when the ship was sunk? There, there were 721 casualties, and 85 survived. Now, the 85, the... the, the uh, 
we were quite sure that during the night we would be picked up by destroyers. Mm-hmm. Nothing came. The first time in the name, in the history of the Royal Navy, they made no effort to pick up survivors. So the, the next day, the Germans came looking for their own people, who've been in this, uh, on these invasion boats of theirs, which had all been, uh, so many been sunk that they turned back, and none of them got across to Crete. And uh, so they were looking for their own, and they managed to pick up 85 of us and land us on the Isle of Kithara. Go back to the actual sinking. So, so it was sunk from an air, from aircraft, not from torpedoes or submarines? No, or anything. we were sunk uh, all aircraft. The, the, the Germans had about, uh, about 600 operative aircraft in the place, and, of course, uh, the RAF had none. <laughs> we had no air support whatsoever. So were you inside the, the, the shell bay when, when, when the ship began to sink? How did you get out? Uh, actually, from the action station, we realized afterwards our connection was with the turret up above. So when the ship was listing quite heavily, we shouted up to the top. And so some voices said, come up top. <laughs> what sort of message was that? So we got out fast. So we just had walked walked along from from our station to to the uh, what they call the well deck, which is about midships, and uh, by then the ship was listed so much that you didn't have to jump into the water; you could walk straight into the water. We're talking today to Mel Baker. He is a centurion uh, and war veteran, and we're listening to his stories about the war and his time, uh, particularly in the Royal Navy. Uh, we'll be back just after the break. Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music, and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the off the wall and outrageous, and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. You're back with 101.9 High FM. We're talking to Mel Baker today, 100-year-old war veteran from World War II, uh, and we are getting his uh, uh, reflections on his life and his story, including uh, where we stopped off just after the break with his sinking uh, in from his ship. Uh, Mel, what was that like uh, once you entered the water uh, yeah. where you were trying to wait to be yeah. rescued? Fortunately, I was one of those. Whenever we went to sea, I tied my light belt around my waist. So at least I had a life belt. A lot of them didn't even have life belts. But when we got into the water, there was a lot of panic. And there were various people pulling others down to sort of <laughs> lever themselves up. Fortunately, the Fiji, which was with us, dropped some of her floats because our boat deck was completely shattered. There was nothing left that floated. But fortunately, there was one raft fairly close. So I thought well, my only hope is to stick around and wait until the bodies get fewer and fewer which always happens. So uh, I just stuck around, swam up to the float, and uh, then somebody tried to pull you over, then the thing would turn over, and all, all back in the water, all climbing back on, so I just swam away, and, uh, and just put my, my arms on my life, life jacket, and virtually stood in the water with my head out the water, until eventually I was able to climb onto the raft and sit, sit on that. But it was a long, long night, and uh, just waiting for the destroyers to come, which never rocked up. And um, next morning, we could see two two little bits of land sticking up, but there's no way we could possibly get to there. If the Germans had not come and picked us up then, there's not one of us would have survived. It would have been a total loss of 806 
men on that ship. And did you know yes. some of the people that died? Were they friends of yours? And yeah, oh yes, a lot of my friends did. There were 32 South Africans on board, and four of us survived. A lot of my friends from Port Elizabeth and some of my school friends from East London days, junior school, were also on the ship. And they all, all perished. There were two, two other, uh, three PE guys and a guy from JB who survived. Now, once you're in the water, do you then have to also worry about enemy fire or other sorts well, of other fire from the ship? Sharks? I don't know. Yeah. When we, when we first got into the water, they came down. The machine guns are going much better. They machine gunned us. And they also dropped bombs in amongst us. But fortunately, none hit me. Our blacksmith had a, had a finish up with a bullet in his stomach somehow. And then, uh, uh, there was a rating from a, a destroyer to a sunk just before us, the, the Greyhound. He had a bullet came in the, towards the, the back of the top of his head and came out. There's just a baby spine at the back. And he's walking around as though nothing had happened to him. As I always said, that guy fortunately had no brains. Nice thing to say about the guy, wasn't it? That's, not, <laughs> that's the sort of humor you've got to live with. <laughs> I, I, it certainly helps to keep you thinking a bit more positively. When we landed on the island of Kithara, of course, the uh, paratroopers, which had been virtually decimated in there, uh, apparently there was one group of 1,500, only 120 of them survived, and they just wanted to shoot us all. So fortunately, a naval guy said, look, they, they are prisoners, they're not yours. They, they, the Navy's prisoners, and... Uh, and then there's some mention, somebody has some mention about the Geneva Convention. I will say the Germans stuck to the Geneva Convention. The convention is set for us, uh, British troops were concerned anyway. The uh, Russians was a different story. But uh, they, they were treated atrociously. They said, look, we, we, we got no food. You, they, they only had their own rations. There's no way they could feed us. Now, fortunately for us, there was a young Greek lad at the age of 15 by the name of Nikos. Nikos scouted around the island with two of his friends and they found food f- from various people and two, two of his friends went to the front of the, of the house where we were in, which was, uh, which barbed wire around it and uh, it distracted the guards there while he pushed food in through the fence at the back. And that sort of kept us going. After about three days, Germans realized something was going on so they opened it up. So this guy kept on. One of his friends had a donkey. They scouted the islands and went um, and brought us clothing. And uh, I finished up with a pair of, uh, I think it must have been Greek cavalry pants. <laughs> the pants I had <laughs> had a, a great big gash in the bottom. So I'm finally sitting on the raft, sitting on the rope and, uh, and moving around and <laughs> tore a great, great big gash through the back. And, uh, and of course, somebody swiped my singlet, and I couldn't prove it was mine, because it's one that one of the guys had left the ship just before it left, had his name on it, so I couldn't claim it. So eventually I finished up with a, with a French army shirt. So now, now, now I had clothing. <laughs> of course, no shoes or anything else like that. So how long, how long were you held in the house on, on the island? There were 75 of us picked up in, in, on Kithra, and uh, 10 were picked up but various other, at other times. We met up with him in Greece, finally. After 10 days on the island, they moved us to Greece. Uh, we landed near Piraeus, 
near Athens, and they put us in a camp there for a while, up to Salonika, up in northern Macedonia, and uh, the, the most shocking conditions. We always joked there, you, 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 you went to sleep in one place, and you woke up the next morning in a different place because the bugs had carried you away. And how did they move you from place to place? Uh, they, uh, they moved us by train, uh, 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 the odd bus and train mainly, of course, way the, the way from uh, southern Greece up to uh, um, Salonika, there was a tunnel, the rail tunnel, which had been blown by the Allies when they when they retreated. So, so they everybody had to get out the train and march over the mountain to the other side. Fortunately, one of the somebody spoke to an officer there, and he organised a track for the Gloucester guys who had no boots. And appealed to him, and we're marching with this with the rest of the men. And they said, and it's a fallout luster. What's going on here? And then they put us in a truck, and we went over. And I joined the navy because I didn't want to march. <laughs> so that was the first march I didn't do. <laughs> Thank goodness. So this whole time that you were, uh, from the time that you 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 lost the ship to the island, you had no shoes at all. Well, I had no shoes until uh, from Salonika. They put us in a train, fifty of us in a in a truck. It's supposed to be for for three day trip. They gave us one bun of bread, three uh, biscuits, and a little tin of bully. No provision for water, and the, the actual trip lasted four days. But we didn't finish with we finished up with fifty seven in that truck because some Australians in, in the truck behind us had cut out <laughs> managed to bash one of the boards out, and of course they were all trying to escape. So they rounded them up and they put seven more, so there were 57 of us in there. There's no room for everybody to even sit down. They spent half the, most of the time standing up for four days and nights. It, 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 that, 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 that was certainly not funny. But anyway, we survived that, and then when we got to a place called Marburg, or Maribor as, as we know it today, in Slovenia, there was a there was an organised camp. That's when I got my first uh, first pair of boots. But I say that they were more, they were more holy than righteous. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they, they were absolutely clapped out. And they were throwaways, and uh, and then they they they, they fingerprint us. Photographs to, to, went through all the routines. It was a properly organised camp. From there, we went to a camp uh, for a, for about a month on a building site where we became bu- building labourers, mixing concrete, carrying bricks, and all the rest of it. And uh, back to the main camp. And then, fortunately for me, uh, they, ten of us were sent into into Austria, very close to the old Yugoslav border, and. Uh, we were on individual farms, and there we were. Just over three years of our, or my four years, was spent in in that place. Well, so when you were were captured at, at the beginning of the war, that was still 1939. How long into the war was it when you were captured? Uh, actually, we were we spent um, trying to think. We, we, it's about about four months four months before we got to. Um, uh, got to Austria to the farm job. That was through that. That was through um, Greece and Yugoslavia those days. And then um, a, a, a week before Christmas, 
uh, 44, they moved us from there. We went on to uh, on to a quarry, quarry job, and uh, we weren't there very long. Then I was in the main camp, uh, one of the main camps, so still in Austria, on the um, right on the Bavarian border, and that is where finally we met up with the uh, with the, with the Americans. How long were you a prisoner for? How much time? Uh, all, all told, four years. Wow. From May 1941 to May 1945. And yeah. what is it like to live in a prison camp? Uh, in, 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 in wartime. What do you do with most of your time if you're not working? How do you get food? What is it like? Well, uh, until we got onto the farm job, uh, we, we were virtually on starvation rations. That they gave you enough to keep you alive, basically. And after that, eventually after about six months, we got our first Red Cross parcels. Because being on the farm jobs, we ate the same as the farmers, as they did plenty of bulk. And then we had the, all the luxuries of these Red Cross parcels. Butter, jam, biscuits, cheese, you name it. <laughs> Chocolate, soap, the lot. Keep yourself nice and clean as well. <laughs> so fantastic parcels. And I think we live better than anybody in, in, uh, in Britain or Germany or, or Europe, anywhere, at that, 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 while the parcels came. The last six months, the parcels dried up. Because there was no transport, all the, the the allies had shot up just about every train. They used to come out. They used to pepper pot the engines. So of course, uh, and we, we saw one engine towing another six, taking them off to the workshop to repair them. And uh, so, the only parcel we got the uh, the, the Red Cross organised for some of the, the prisoners to go into Austria, into into uh, to Switzerland. And uh, pick up, uh, provided trucks, loaded them with parcels, then let them drive them back through, and then they went backwards and forwards ferrying these parcels. Could you imagine what would happen to one of the, one of those guys if he'd uh, if, if he stayed in in Switzerland <laughs> after the war? He he, he wouldn't have survived. <laughs> as a as a prisoner, what do you do for entertainment? Uh, are you, is, do you have time to relax? Do you are you able to? Well, do you think? It, it, in the main camps, they organized things, but I was never in the main camp that long. It was only at the beginning and at the end, and then there was none. So, they, But they always organized themselves. But where we were on the farm job, there was no time for entertainment or anything. You worked six days a week from six in the morning to eight at night. So <laughs> there was no entertainment at all. The only entertainment you could have if you were lucky enough to find yourself a girlfriend. So, so did you work alongside the farm laborers in that area? You worked together and you all ate together on the same. Food was put in the middle of the table and you, and you all mucked out of the same dish. Soup and all. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the way they ate, yeah. And, and these, and these people you were working with were sort of peasants from the countryside who, 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 yeah. who were there. Yeah. And were you able to communicate with them? Did they speak English? Uh, well, Actually, by, by the time I'd left there, you could with them 14 hours a day, six days a week. I, I was absolutely fluent in the lingo. Very, very much. It wasn't, it wasn't good German. It was a, the dialect, a real peasant dialect. Of course, after 70 years, I've forgotten most of it now. I, I battled, I battled to, 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 to get a sentence split together. Yeah. And, and how did those your peasants treat you as, as you know, given that you were sort of from well, the other side. On the farm job, at the, virtually, 
They treat you as one of the family would almost. Yet it was a bit rough when they started. They didn't know how to treat us. And, and the kids were always, you know, putting their hands up whenever they saw you, put their hands up, all the rest and, and sort of, and booing us and all that. But afterwards, their the whole attitude changed. They realized we were just people like them. <laughs> Yeah. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and we're talking today to Mel Baker uh, about his experiences during the war. We'll be back just after this. Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music, and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the off-the-wall and outrageous, and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. You're back with 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the new Blue Review. Talking today to Mel Baker. He is 100 years old and uh, we're talking to him about his war experiences during World War II uh, and uh, some fascinating ones. We were just uh, listening about uh, the camps that he stayed in uh, in Austria as a, as a farm uh, laborer uh, sort of being uh, forced labored into, into helping uh, the effort there, uh, and and you were just telling us, Mel, that you met up with the Americans uh, at the end of the war, and what happened after that? The Americans, uh, first time I'd seen a, a jeep. Trader and I said, when the war finished the, the day before, the guards just left the gates open. So the Trader and I said, we're not going to wait for these Americans. Let's walk down the road see if we can find them. <laughs> so we toddled off, and uh, eventually we spent a night up in somebody's barn on the way, and. Uh, Next, next day, down the road, I saw a jeep coming. I never, I didn't know what it was, never seen a jeep before. And there was an officer with a guy with a machine gun and a driver. So, you know, I, I shouted at them and said, <laughs> so the guy wanted to know who we were, what all about. I said, look, we've been looking for you. There are 10,000 guys up there waiting for you. So he said, carry on down the road. There's a camp. You find a camp, a bridge has been blown, the, the road bridge is blown, and the rail bridge had been damaged. But they got the jeep across, and uh, they couldn't take anything else because some, uh, some silly guy had uh, taken a great big ten-ton truck across using the, the, the planks on the side. And, of course, the planks had collapsed and were sitting on its axles on the railway in the middle of the railway bridge. So they couldn't, uh, they couldn't get anything across then. So I spent the night there with this lot. The next morning, I got I got a lift into um, to Munich, where, where they had a bit of a camp there, prisoners of war. So we waited in Munich for um, for a few days and said, right, we're flying you out. They're sending Dakotas to fly you out. So they put us in groups of 13 on the airport. They said that we'd be picked up that day. We spent three nights on that just sitting at an airport waiting for the waiting for transport. They didn't say only seen three or four planes. Instead of seeing about twenty of them they seen three or four at a time. So eventually I I jumped the queue a bit. I found there was one guy who was missing so I jumped jumped a few jumped the queue and I got away after after four days. And uh, into Brussels, the Canadians had a fantastic camp organized there. The first thing they did stripped us all into the showers, dusted off with DDT powder, and then give me brand new uniforms. All the old, all the old uniforms were thrown away, and because d- during the war we'd uh, we'd received from Britain boots 
and a full battle dress with, with great coat. But that was after about 18 months in the war. So that all went. So from Brussels, we just, just got into the camp in Brussels, said, oh no, we're moving you out. We can't fly, fly out from Brussels. The airport, the, the airfields were, were out of commission. So they put us in a train, which has been a prison train. And of course, all the weak bladders and so on, they left, they left the, the doors open, the passages. And this cold breeze had blown all night, spent a most miserable night. That's our fir- first night where we think we're going to be comfortable. <laughs> this, this is what we had to put up with. Anyway, the next day they flew us out, uh, put, put us in Lancaster bombers and flew us across to Britain. From there they went down to Brighton and they said, how do you want to go home? I said, well, I want to, I want to uh, fly because I want to get home as soon as I can. And, uh, uh, we had the option of flying or, or going by ship. So they said, but first of all, 30 days leave. So they gave us a, uh, 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 half the money that was due to us was, was in our pay book, which we could spend in England. So uh, they sent us off on this leave and said, where, where do you want to go? So I don't know. So rail pass Inverness. <laughs> I think they just gave everybody to nobody go further north than Inverness. So, so uh, uh, when I got back, they said, "Oh no, there's no more flying because they've had lost a couple of planes with prisoners of war in them. They were flying them out, and they lost them in the, in Central Africa. So uh, they stopped that. They said, "Well, when's the next ship?" They said, "You're not on the next ship. You didn't you didn't go put your name down for a ship. You you've got to wait." So I spent three months in Britain. Then I got, then I got home and who do I meet on the ship going back? But Joey, Joey Le Pen. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Your neighbor from PE. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, we, when we got to Cape Town, he said, come on, he's got, he, he's got relations in Cape Town. He's come with me. So we went, we, I went with him to his relations and then they put the most sumptuous lunch. <laughs> Fantastic. Because on the ship, all we'd had, Every day was kippers, <laughs> kippers, kippers, and kippers. So, so we spent we spent the day with them. That night they put us on the train to PE. So we we get on the train, and and those and of course in those days they had their own their, their own uh, galley on the on the train, and they used to cook fabulous food there. With oh boy, we're going to get lovely food, because we didn't know that there's such a thing as a meatless day in South Africa on a Wednesday. So what do we get for lunch? Kippers. <laughs> anyway, that, that that was that was the last bit of our trip to uh, after over five and a half years. That's a good uh, you know what a thing to and the, the the best sight I think I've ever seen was when the ship came in and saw Table Mountain. That that was absolutely fantastic. Now tell me, have you ever, um, have you ever been back to the, to the, to the island? Did you ever go back? I've been back to, to Austria twice, place where I was, 19 years after I left it. I went there, I, I was only there for 24 hours, and I went to the, uh, to the farmer. He was still, he was still there, and he's, uh, he had four sons, two SS, there. The one got home, the Russians took him off and they never saw him again. The the other one was uh, SS uh, uh, Corporal. 
uh, the partisans got him in Yugoslavia, but the, 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 uh, the other two got home. But the one spent most of his time at home. His eyesight had very poor eyesight. So uh, I think they only put him in uniform right towards the end of the, end of the war. But if he, when, I, when I arrived there, one of the youngsters, I said, where, you know, I inquired where he was. So one of the youngsters, he's down there. So off he trotted down the road. So I followed him down there. And then Hans, the next thing he put his arms around me, I thought he was going to kiss me. <laughs> so, and then the old man came out after me, sitting, sitting outside on, on, on a bit of a veranda at, at the back of the house. And, uh, of course, he kept on sending for a great big uh, stein of beer, which put in front of me and goes all the way around the table. So my wife, and after a while, my wife said to me, she said, tell me, which side were you on in the war? <laughs> because <laughs> I, I, I was treated like a long-lost son. And then uh, ten years after that, I went back again, the old man had died, and um, but the son was still there, and and there, uh, I, I, I stayed a bit longer and had the opportunity to, to 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 go meet up with my old girlfriend. That that that, that was great. It was good to go back then just to see how things had developed. Because when I was there, there was no mechanisation whatsoever. Everything was done by hand. Get back there. Everybody's got a tractor, everybody driving around in Mercedes and BMWs, you name it. The things have changed so much. Roads are all being tarred. It was, you know, it was unbelievable, the change in the place. And, and what about uh, the, the island? Uh, uh, the, 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 what now I've gone for the name? Yeah. Uh, well, about, what's about 20 years ago, yeah. It is, yeah. Uh, just about uh, 1998 or nine. There was a, a, a book written by, by Ken Otter, the, um, the true story of H.M.S. Gloucester. His father was lost on the ship, and he wasn't happy about what he heard. So he did a lot of, uh, a lot of research, and he wrote this book. Now, I saw a copy of this book at uh, one of the guys in one of the shallows in P.E. He had the book. So I saw who, the, saw who the publisher was, so I wrote to the publisher inquiring how I could get one, suggesting that he give me a freebie, which didn't happen. So I got, then I got a letter in the post from the Gloucester Association, which they call the Fighting G Club, and um, saying we found our 16th, uh, our 16th survivor. So, and then in 2001, uh, this uh, a guy Ken Otter, among among others, arranged a visit to the island of Kithra. No trouble. Off I go to Britain for a reunion, and then six of six of the survivors went to the island of Kithra with family and friends and so on. The uh, Royal Navy sent one of their frigates, Northampton, and uh, uh, took us out to sea to where the Gloucester where the Gloucester lies. For, for a ceremony over the ship. Now, that was also recorded by the BBC. And, and the BBC and, had made a documentary on Otter's book, and then this was a follow-up to it. And, and what had ever happened? Do, do you ever find out what happened to Nikos, who helped you with the food? Uh, well, we went to Nikos, especially then. Hmm. To, we, we, we had a medal made for him, and we presented him with his medal. To he who dares... Inscription in English and in, in and in Greek. Oh, that's, and that's we actually amazing. went there and presented him with that medal. 
and he was he was so pleased to see everybody, and also met up with his friend who had the donkey, and the house where we stayed in, we went in there as well. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Mel, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, talking to you. Thank you so much for spending time with us uh, and telling us uh, your story. And uh, thank you also uh, to uh, Fred Oppenheimer who helped uh, put the interview together. That brings us to the end of the show for today. Uh, thank you to Vusi who helps us with the sound. Craig who pushes all the big red buttons. Uh, we'll be back next week again with you on the new Blue Review.